Funding for the Hinckley Report is made possible in part by the Cleone Peterson Eccles Endowment Fund. Thank you for listening to the Hinckley Report, your weekly political roundup. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Good evening and welcome to the Hinckley Report. I'm Jason Perry, director of the Hinckley Institute of Politics. Covering the week, we have Max Roth, anchor with Fox 13 News, Sonia Hudson, political reporter with KUER, and Robert Gerke, news columnist with the Salt Lake Tribune. So glad to be with you all this evening. And this is a very interesting time. It's the last few hours of the legislative session. 45 days, it barely even seems like it, right? Uh, but so many bills on the table. I wanna to get to some of those because some are on their way to the governor already. Uh, some are gonna be really decided this evening here uh, in the final hours. I wanna to get to one issue, uh, Sonia, we'll start with you, which has been a theme through the entire legislative session. It's how do we separate the responsibilities during a pandemic? This is something the legislature, the governor, even local health authorities have been really wrestling over. Yeah, I mean, the legislature has been talking about this since last spring, right? And so they took a lot of time to kind of craft some legislation that they felt was an appropriate balance between the legislature, the governor's office, and local health departments. Uh, so the big bill passed in the House last night. It was the very last thing they did before they went home for the night. And um, it gives the legislature a lot more power in public health emergencies like the one we're in right now. So they can basically override um, any public health order, which is a big shift in power. Um, that's kind of the, the main thing. And this is something that they've been working on with the governor's office. So um, I assume that he will probably sign it. Um, and it's just kind of trying to trying to balance those powers a little more. The legislature felt really out of the loop at the beginning of this um, of this pandemic. They felt like they were learning about executive orders through the news, which really kind of ticked them off. Um, and so they passed some stuff in a special session that just kind of gave them more notice and a little bit more buy-in. But this is a big expansion of their emergency right. powers. Right, Robert, what is the heart of this problem? I mean, there's the notice thing, it's true, but what, what really is the problem with the governor extending these emergency orders? Yeah, I mean, I think the argument that the legislature made, and I think it has some merit, is that a state of emergency isn't really intended to last an entire yeah. year. I mean, you know, it's for earthquakes, it's for fires, it's for things like that. And and so we have this pandemic that took an entire year now and is going to take several more months. And we've been operating under this government or governor issued state of emergency and the legislature has had problems with that. A lot of legislators think it went too far. They don't like mask mandates, they, but they want to have control more than anything. And so, I, you know, I understand where they're coming from and wanting to reestablish some balance. It should be noted, I think, that throughout this entire thing, ever since day one, the legislature has ha had that authority that it gave to itself through that constitutional amendment to call itself into an emergency session if it really had the guts to do it. But, you know, they, uh, maybe to their credit, they didn't tinker with it. They didn't want to get too involved with it. Um, you know, there's it, it's finding the balance, like you said at the outset, to between being able to move expeditiously and urgently when it's needed and also being able to have the authority or, or the, the body that is supposed to have the authority the legislature setting the policy and so hopefully they they struck a balance i think uh, the governor is indicating that he's you know that they've got it to a place where he's comfortable with go ahead max i think robert is exactly right there jason you know the the uh, it's a difference between the nature of an executive and of a, a lawmaker a policymaker um that uh, you know e even when we elect these folks we're when we're electing a governor we're thinking okay 
this is the man or woman who's going to be making the decisions on how we act, how the government acts. Whereas uh, you, we're electing representatives to um, hopefully, uh, hopefully they reflect what we think is wise in opinion to set policy. And it's just, it's not a system designed for a pandemic. It's just that, you know, pandemic is a whole different kind of emergency, uh, that, that, that extended emergency. So they've got to find that middle ground. And I think Senator Vickers said in, during during debate and in presentation that this is not about this pandemic. It's about the, or, or it's about the next emergency, whatever that may be. And hopefully, we maybe have a hundred years before the next one. Hopefully, yeah, hopefully. but uh, but it's not really going to affect them this as much this time. Uh, it's more you know prospectively. Well, it, it might. I mean, when I look at places like Texas where they're lifting a bunch of their restrictions, we're getting to a point where the government is going to have to make some decisions about like, okay, at what point do we start lifting restrictions with vaccines yeah. rolling out, uh, cases are falling, they're gonna continue to fall, it seems like. And so I think this could still be in play during this pandemic. But they had a couple opportunities to do that this session and didn't do it. That's they didn't have the votes to do it. So, I mean, they tried to repeal a mask mandate, right. Representative Phil Lyman twice tried to repeal the mask mandate immediately and they couldn't do it. They did have this bill that Representative Paul Ray uh, proposed to set these uh, milestones or mile markers and at which point we'll start rolling back some of the restrictions and, and that one looks like it's into a place that they've negotiated it with the governor's office to a point where they're gonna be able to pass that one through and get a signature on it. Right, hey Max, will you talk about that one for just a moment because it's interesting, this is Representative Paul Ray and he called it the end game mm -hmm. yeah. bill. He's saying, how do we know when we're done with the pandemic? How do we know when we can get back to business. They're trying to set those parameters. Talk about that for just a moment because this one had a whole lot of negotiation, a little bit of controversy. Yeah, you know, the, the controversy comes just in uh, you, you, the Paul Ray representing uh, a stream of thought that's, uh, that is really um, prevalent, that, uh, that this is overblown at this point, that the government needs to pull back, that um, these mandates are too restrictive on people's individual rights to decide how they behave. And so, so Ray wants, uh, he, he, there's, a, there's a sense of resentment about the, the health department making decisions that feel, in their minds, arbitrary. Uh, now, the health department would say their decisions based on science rather than on um, arbitrary benchmarks. So, yeah. Oh yeah, I mean, it's it, Representative Paul Ray back in May of, the, of of last year said that we should roll back, we should get rid of all the restrictions. And if you think about it, since then we've had probably three hundred thousand people infected and eighteen hundred dead. So you know, to have legislators start calling the shots on these things is a dangerous way to do it, frankly. Um, but you know, he he set these benchmarks: half the population vaccinated. We're not close to that yet, so we have a long ways to go. I mean, we're getting there, yeah. but it's there, there's a ways to go, and hopefully, if we stay on the trajectory we're on it's you know we'll get to we'll get to where we need to be I mean he said he told me last week that he thinks we'll have a jazz game fully you know full attendance 10 uh, 12,000 people uh, in attendance and and within the week and uh, unfortunately the jazz don't play again until March 12th so we got some time but this that's the kind of this the mentality I think that we're seeing uh, from the legislature they want to be in control but they're not necessarily basing this on on science and data yeah. and and they don't have the expertise to do that, so it's 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 a tension that has existed since the early days of the pandemic. Yeah, Sonia, because I want to ask you before we leave this, because it is an interesting point what you all brought up on the distinction about who's supposed to make these decisions. Uh, the the three areas this bill specifically said is uh, the end game for him is an average of 447 new cases per day. We're 
less than 640 right now. COVID patients, less than 15% of the ICU beds, and 1.6 billion Utah has been vaccinated, as Robert just said. But what's interesting about this is these the legislature is kind of saying, we want to help set this policy, and it's set up a little bit of an issue with these local health departments, who are the ones that kind of monitor these things, but also have to implement that policy. Yeah, I mean, everything about emergency powers is a tug of war between local health departments, between the state health department, between the legislature and the governor's office. And what's interesting about those thresholds is that that case number is like when we were almost to the peak of our summer surge. Like that's not where we were for the months actually at the beginning of the pandemic. And so I'm a, I'm a little interested in, in why that is the is the case threshold. But um, yeah, I mean, the argument for, you know, let the let the public health officials mm -hmm. make this decision, but the legislature says, you know, maybe you're being a little too extreme. Well, it kind yeah. of illustrates the problem, though, because when Representative Ray pre presented this bill in committee, he said it was 2,900 cases a day is, is the average that would trigger that threshold. It's 2,900 cases in a 14-day span, so that, and, and then they raised it, so it ends up being about 450, 470, like you said. So it's the it's the problem, when, it's the challenge of having people who don't know what they're doing trying to set yeah pandemic policy. Yeah. yeah, and Senate President Stuart Adams had a really interesting comment about that earlier this week. He was kind of saying, well, I don't really know if this bill is necessary. We didn't legislate the start of this pandemic. Why do we need to legislate uh -huh. the end of it? So we'll see what happens to that in yeah, the Senate. For sure. So there's a there's a line from this to a couple other interesting bills touching public education, higher education this week as well as they talk about the COVID response. So Max, one of those bills, uh, this is Senator Todd Weiler, we, we talked about on the program uh, last week about their, the legislature's interest in getting all kids back to school. Uh, and the, the original drafts of this bill went right after making sure every district allowed K through 12. But in addition, this week, an amendment what was added to this particular bill that told universities, public universities, they must go back 75%, offer classes for 75% of their students. Yeah, you know, it's uh, again, it's a very similar thing to what we were just talking about. And, and you mentioned that the, the link there is um, how, how much control do you give elected school boards? How much control do you give uh, the board of trustees of a university and a university president and those sorts of uh, institutions? There are there are people who have been elected to make those decisions. Um, and the legislature uh, every now and then likes to uh, establish their preeminence among the different governing bodies, that they're the main governing body in the state of Utah, whether it's over counties and cities or whether it's over school boards. And we've seen a heavy hand that way this year. It started with the whole issue of giving teachers bonuses and uh, kind of trying to uh, muscle the Salt Lake City School District into going back to class. And some would say that worked, that the Salt Lake uh, kind of towed the line after that threat was made. And now they're just, uh, this feels like an extension of that. Mm -hmm. Well, that's Honestly. always a huge debate at the legislature and, and what a lot of people criticize lawmakers for is they say we're for local control, but then they'll go and pick and choose areas where, you know, they want to make decisions for localities instead. And um, if you talk to lawmakers about that, I, particularly I'm thinking with the teacher bonuses that Max just mentioned, um, they say, well, this is something that's so important, we need to step mm -hmm. in and, and we need to be, you know, good stewards of, of the children of our state. And this is something that's so important that maybe we do know better.
Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, we could spend an entire show, I think, <laughs> talking about the areas where the legislatures come in and taking power away from school boards, from local health districts, from cities, from counties. Uh, it, it's it's what they do when they come into come into a session. They took a, they're taking power away from police departments in some ways yeah. by saying you have to do this, you have to do that, and that also takes power away from cities and mayors. So I mean, it, the legislature loves to control and call the shots, and and that's what we see in for 45 days every year. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things they did get involved in directly just this week, and uh, all, all of you have covered it to some, some degree, is efforts to help with the homeless population. People are experiencing homeless in the state of Utah. So Robert, just this week, uh, a big press conference, in fact, uh, outside the Capitol, you have Clark Ivory, you have Gail Miller, you have the President of the Senate, the Speaker of the House, talking about records amount of, amounts of money to help address this issue. Yeah, I mean, and, and I think they're, they're, they're seeing that this is not, we thought we had the problem under control, I think, a year ago, two years ago, and, and, and it's not. And, and so they're trying, to, they're trying to nip this in the bud or at least, at least put a big investment into it. And it's important because they haven't really put the money where it needs to go, and that is getting people into permanent housing. You solve homelessness by putting people in homes. And so that's, that's I think, the most important piece of this. It's going to go a long ways toward, toward resolving this problem. I don't know, Sonia, were you at that, were you at that news? conference? Uh, no, my co-worker was, but I mean, it's it, they're putting a lot of money into it, but these private organizations are putting even more. Right, about so. 50 million from the legislature, 730 million from private and, and enterprise. Go ahead, Max. And the, ex the extent of this problem is cannot be overstated, really. The, and, and this problem specifically in Utah. Utah has fewer vacancies in homes than any state in the country 50th out of 50 we do not have homes available and and this is what stunned me the most the median home price in utah about five hundred and eighty nine thousand dollars that's the fourth highest in the country it goes california hawaii massachusetts utah and that stuns me because the Utah's median wage is nowhere near fourth highest in the country. And so uh, it, it's a, it, it is something I'm glad they're taking seriously. Um, and they seem to think that this is a, that they, what they're putting in place is, will, will be effective. They, they sure think that they can leverage a whole lot of money, $50 million investment from the state, and then eventually getting that to $750 for, from philanthropy, local governments, and some capital investment. Well, it's interesting to talk about the median wage because that is a portion of this calculation that lawmakers don't really talk about a lot. They are very focused on addressing the supply side of the issue, building more units. You know, we don't have enough units. There's been lots of reports on that. We do need to build more. Um, but they want to focus on that supply side versus raising the minimum wage, for example, which mm -hmm. they think would, you know, mess with the market. Yeah. Two bills, two bills this session to raise the minimum wage, and neither of them got very far at all. Those are yeah. not very far. And uh, you know, a lot of those things that the state brags about, uh, you know, we're, we're number one for business in four magazine or those sorts of things or from the American Legislative Exchange Council uh, having a low minimum wage is one of the figures that gets Utah those rankings and so when they say business friendly um, sometimes that does mean low wages uh, so yeah the, the other thing to note that I think in another state where politics was more competitive and more combative is that uh, they focus on building the president of the Senate and the Speaker of the House are both home builders 
for their day jobs. Yeah, there's a lot of lawmakers that work in construction or real estate. Um, it's a pretty common crossover field. Yeah. Uh, of note, before we leave this, uh, uh, Representative Steve Ellison does have a bill to create an Office of Homeless Services inside the Department of Workforce Services aimed at helping with this issue. But also one last thing that will impact people in Salt Lake City in particular. Uh, this is Representative Ray Ward, a bill that allows people to build accessory dwellings. I'm following that one, Robert, but people you know, creating these mother-in-law apartments or something like that in their home for people to live in. Yeah, and the, and the concern, I guess, the reason he thinks it needs to be done is because some some localities, some municipalities have said, no, we don't want these allowed. Mm -hmm. You know, it creates parking issues, it creates density issues. Um, and so they put restrictions on it, and this says, well, no, we have a crisis, we need more housing. And so to, one way to do that is to, to limit cities' abilities to restrict those. Um, you know, and, and so it, you can see potential problems, but it's also something, as Max said, we, we don't have the inventory now, we don't have places for people to live, and I think that's an important priority for us. Yeah, and ADUs are an interesting strategy because I kind of think of them as a, a NIMBY-friendly way to increase density. You know, you're just making a little mother-in-law unit rather than building a big apartment complex yeah. in some of these single-family home neighborhoods. Um, but the flip side of it is also, there's the potential for these to be turned into Airbnbs, and that doesn't do anything to help the housing stock. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, let me get to a couple other issues, just kind of uh, discrete single issues that I just think are interesting for this session. One that occupied so much time, we talked about on the show, Dixie State University. All right. So uh, a bill has finally been compromised. Uh, they've had a compromise on this bill. Max, talk about what you've seen behind the scenes, because this one divided our legislature. It divided our legislature. It divided the southwestern Utah community between a lot of the young people, the students uh, at the university and the folks who have lived there for a long time. Yeah, uh, there is. Um, I, I didn't realize I've been in northern Utah my whole life uh, exactly how much attachment people had to that uh, that notion of, of that being Utah's Dixie. Um, and it is, uh, you know, the students say, hey, we're, we're going out into uh, a big world where we're going to be on LinkedIn looking for uh, for jobs across the country and uh, and outside of southwestern Utah Dixie means something wholly different and the power of that word and that name has changed over time both sides think it's a powerful name it's just which powers imbued in it is it the negative uh, connotations from America's history or is it the, what a lot of folks down there see as really positive connotations of their pioneer heritage well describe it please yeah I, I don't think you can necessarily separate the meaning of it, meaning, you know, the, the, the American South versus the South of, of Utah. I mean, back in the day, there was lots of Confederate iconography associated with the university. Like, they're not completely divorced, but um, it was definitely that bill uh, and the compromises that were made were a really big example of the Senate and the House working together this year. And it was definitely something they could have fought over, but it seems like they came to some sort of compromise where um, now it's going to go back to the Board of Trustees and they're going to have right. this conversation all over again, which they've already had, but um, just to try to get some more public input and make people feel a little bit better that they're included in this conversation. But I mean, it's kind My of a My understanding right? of the compromise is just a commission, right? To, yeah. uh, to There'll be a committee that looks at preserving the culture and the history, but it's not that committee. It doesn't sound like that committee is going to have any authority over the name change, really. 
Yeah, I mean, you guys are both right. I, don't, I think, I think, regardless how people down there view it, it it's viewed differently outside of outside the state, outside the region. And so you've kind of got to do something. You can't separate the racist overtones from the term. But I think they kind of punted on this, frankly. I mean, they're just like, well, we'll fight about this later because yeah. we don't, you know, we don't want to have the fight now. Um, it's it's encouraging that they're getting more public input. But um, ultimately, at the end of the day, I mean, I think the name's got to change, and it, there seemed to be a strong momentum to do that, but they didn't want to steamroll uh, the locals. Yeah. In fact, I think this compromise said something to the fact that well, as you come up with your new, new name, it, it could have the word Dixie in it. I mean, they didn't even want to prescribe Yeah, yeah, prescribe yeah. That. it leaves a lot open. Yeah. Uh, speaking of something leave it open, um, new state flag. Okay, Sonia, so this bill is back. Dan uh, McKay finally got it through. He finally did. <laughs> Talk about this, because there's going to be another group to help decide on this. Yeah, uh, lots of commissions created this session. Um, so what this bill does is, and this is something that Senator Dan McKay has been trying to mm -hmm. do for a long time. He hates the state flag. <laughs> um, it, yeah, and so basically what it does is it creates this uh, commemorative flag just for this year, which has already been designed, um, and then it creates a commission to talk about potentially modifying or creating a new state flag um, the argument being that you know ours is just the state seal slapped on some yeah. blue fabric um, we want to modernize it you know make it more distinctive from other states that also just have their seal slapped on a, a piece of fabric so um, we'll see what that commission comes up with and I believe it has to go back to the legislature to be approved yeah that's right Max what are you hearing about this because it took a lot of time and a few years yeah, and there was that weird little controversy at the end that was uh, it seemed a little overblown where um, one of the designs uh, was adopted by uh, an online group that uses a hashtag, the DesNat group, and they say some pretty, um, uh, yeah, they, you know, uh, un unsavory things uh, in defending their point of view. And so so they were talking about uh, leaving a design out of the, of the competition. But no, you know, I... I I feel attached a little bit to the old flag. We always had it on our, our flagpole growing up, so yeah. I'm, I'm a little sad that people bag on it so much. But at the same time, you know, it's, it's, uh, people love symbolism, and, and uh, Sonia's absolutely right. It is, it, there's, it, it's not too distinctive. You see it from a distance, and you don't know what you're looking I at. I mean, I think Max, Max nailed it. People love symbolism. We're fighting over the name of Dixie. We're fighting over the flag. Mm -hmm. we, like, we really like our symbols. We really, we get, we're, we feel passionate about things that there's a connection to. I mean, this daylight savings time, there's never a bigger fight at the legislature than daylight saving time, which seems pretty trivial in the larger scheme of things when we're talking about three quarters of a million dollars, or three quarters of a billion dollars for homeless people. But, you know, that these are the things that rile people up and and mm -hmm. it's, it's interesting to watch it uh, play out mm -hmm. it's also very interesting to watch senator mckay's passion for it he came in earlier this week to the house holding the flag <laughs> and uh and just just to make a show of of support for that bill mm -hmm. there's a flag on everyone's desk for yeah. for mm -hmm. them on, in the legislature uh, i want to hit a couple of more items just really quickly robert you had a great column on uh tax reform the legislature promised some of it we've got three specific areas of targeted tax uh, decre decreases yeah yeah, so we coming into the session had this big budget surplus. Uh, the speaker, the, uh, the governor, the Senate president all said we're going to have some tax cuts. They came up with about $100 million. Part of that is just fixing a, a 
error, I guess, in the Trump tax cut. When they lowered the federal deduction, it meant especially people with large families ended up paying more, so they're fixing that. It's not super controversial, I don't think. Um, the, the other two, uh, it, it, they've, they've come up with uh, not taxing retirement income for uh, seniors and uh, not taxing military pensions, which, I mean, could we, who can argue with that? I mean, the, the problem is when you kind of unpack these a little bit is, is most of that goes to people who make more than $90,000, about 70% of the C, uh, Social Security tax cut goes to uh, people making over $91,000, and 90%, 90% plus of the military pension tax cut goes to people making more than $90,000. And the part that bothered me about this is there was a proposal for an earned income tax credit for lower income people, working families, that, that would put about $640 into their pockets each year to help them pay those bills, because as we talked about, you know, we've got really high housing prices, uh, we've got pandemic struggles, um, and they didn't pass that. And I think it was unfortunate that instead, you know, you've got these people who presumably have kids out of the house, uh, who, you know, have lower expenses and these larger incomes almost double the statewide average, and they're going to get uh, some tax relief. But, you know, it's 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 a well-packaged uh, proposal because, no, everybody loves grandma and everybody loves soldiers, so, mm -hmm. so it flew through. Yeah, for sure. Uh, one more thing, Max, um, when we talked on the show last week, we, we discussed how every year we have an effort to go after Senate Bill 54, which allows us, uh, people to get on the ballot by signature or boot through the caucus convention system. Uh, what are you seeing happening this week? Because that bill seems to have, have stalled a bit. But you never know. Yeah, it seems like it has died the way that bills do. Uh, you know that it's uh, that it uh, it was sent to rules. It bills where you know no one wants the sponsor to have their feelings hurt, but circled and and not sent to rules, but circled and and just kind of floating out there. But it is possible that uh, it could pass the the Senate still. And if it were to pass, it would be a dramatic change to the way that we select candidates. It would essentially allow the Republican Party to go to choose to go. Go back to a system where the convention entirely decides who is uh, who's the candidate or who faces who or who gets on a primary ballot. So what are all hearing? Why is it, it it reared up pretty quickly? Got hot and stopped. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not really sure what. I mean, obviously, it is such a hot potato, controversial mm -hmm. issue. I think um, maybe they, the Senate just didn't want to deal with it this time around. There's a lot going on. There's still a pandemic going on. Um, and it also has the domino effect of Count My Vote, which is the um, people who originally came to the table and helped create mm -hmm. SB 54. They have said, like, look, if this bill passes, then we're either going to put a referendum on it to repeal right. it, or we're going to go back to our original proposition, which is entirely eliminates the caucus convention system, which the Republicans would really not be happy about. Um, so I think there's also maybe a sense of not wanting to start from square one, because as you all know, that was a very years-long fight that's still going on. There was a lawsuit that made it all the way up to the Supreme Court before getting kicked back down, but um, I think maybe there's a, a sense of not wanting to redo all of that. And there was also some polling data that showed that people really like the primary system that they put in place, and so if they did try to pursue that initiative, it, it probably would have, I mean, it has broad public support, yeah. and I don't think they were ready for that fight. Mm -hmm. uh, one last thing in our last 15 seconds, Robert, while you're talking about that, also did change when one needs to register and affiliate with the party. March 31st, we talked about this on the show, so by March 31st now, that bill has passed. That's when you have to change your party affiliation if you're going to vote in the next 
general election. Yeah, and I think this was a response to Huntsman's campaign when he ran for governor to kind of say, you know, when, when he was encouraging unaffiliated voters to move over. Um, it, there have been studies that show it didn't really make much difference, but they want to limit that. Yeah. Yeah. Limit the hijinks. <laughs> limit the hijinks. We're going to have to end with that. Thank you for your great insights about this legislative session. So much to unpack, a lot of bills. Thank you for giving us your insight. Thank you for listening to The Hinkley Report. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help more people find out about it, please rate it and leave us a positive review.